This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today, we have the returns of, he is a chief corporate consultant. Um, I think I said that right. It's a rare commodity on, on our show. He is Onkar Jin. Hello, everybody. Nice to be back. Yeah, those were just separate buzzwords to me. Did I put them in the right order? Did that make any sense? Not really, but you know, it's all a bunch of alphabet soup at some point. Okay, all right. And she is award-winning playwright and a researcher in academia. She is Dr. Anne Lee. Hi, Kev. Hi, Kajun. I put those words in the right order, I know that. So uh, our three topics this week are, topic number one is... Team sports, should they be taught at school? Copy number two is history of science. And finally, topic number three is our album's history. So with topic number one, team sports. Now, Anne, you and me, we went to school in England. And I do know, though, that my education <clears throat> was very similar to uh, what was happening here in Malaysia. In the big name schools, you know, the, the VI, St. John's, Bukit Bintang Girls School even, and LaSalle. Penang Free School, all, all, the, all those big name schools. And one of the things that in my education in the 70s and the 80s, there was a big emphasis on team sport. So many hours were, of my day were dedicated to team sport. And it wasn't just sold as being sports. You didn't just do sports. It was, it was the emphasis was on team sport. I don't think the teachers themselves really knew why. It was just, it was just the way things were done. In later years, I realized that, that I was being educated at the the very tail end of the kind of final shadows of Victorian-style education, Um, where in the mid-1800s there had been an explosion in the middle class and they were going to these public schools and sports were being taught. And there were two principal reasons, apparently, so the story goes, why team sports were very important. One was it was to dissuade young boys from thinking about masturbation, keep them busy, because it was a, it was a, it was a science, scientific, medical knowledge that masturbation sapped your energy, <laughs> and if you had no energy, you couldn't rule the empire, because the empire was full of full of lazy people, and <clears throat> the Britishers had to be more energetic. Number two was that education then really wasn't about being taught to be clever it wasn't really even about education it was about just agreeing on what the principles of knowledge were as opposed to shining Uh, occasionally a person would come through and shine but there's a real anti-intellectualism in anglo-american culture so instead team sports taught you how to slot into the machine especially the sport that i had to to play rugby where you do a very specific task and you have to do it well but you just do that one thing. And you don't have to think. And in fact, there's a lot of violence involved. We didn't get taught football because that was for working class people. And, and at the same time, in Malaysia, there was team sports being taught here. But, but it seems to have dropped off here. And I'm wondering, is there a value in team sports? I know, Anne, you, you took part in team sports, did you not? Um, yes, I, I would like to first qualify that um, I went to school in in Malaysia as well, but albeit at Upland School uh, in, in Penang, and we were in um, rarefied air of Penang Hill. Uh, so I'm not sure about how that school was exactly about 
team sports in the same way that you describe. And certainly when I did go to school in the UK, it was at an all girls school. So I'm not sure that masturbation was necessarily on their minds for all girls, but <laughs> absolutely, you know, um, um, I don't think any, any girl needs team sports to sort of do that, but, but to prove of it, maybe. I don't know. Like, what was the question, Cam? Well, I, you know, I'm just sort of giving the, the, the kind of like historical thought behind it, but, you know, people forget the historical foundation of the creation and it just becomes a thing that people have to do and then it drops off but i think people doing sports before you know i mean i think activity in various histories is the kind of thing i think that you know you do it and you enjoy it or you don't and you get there's various gains from it the victorian thing i don't know i mean the ideas around how how some Victorian ideas about about sex. I think it was for boys, though. We have to remember that this was a time when only boys counted. Yes. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Um, so, so now, though, in a contemporary context, yeah, sports have so many values, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which I think um, rugby is even. You know, I mean, I think those sports which were specifically um, taught for certain genders to play. Uh, I think even that has changed, right? I mean, it's yeah. uh, rugby. I know of a friend who plays rugby, and I think it's Tunku Kusia. They 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 have um, uh, rugby as as a sport for uh, girls and women to play. Um, and I, you know, for the health benefits, the health benefits I think have kind of stretched somewhat beyond masturbation, though they still apply, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's a philo- philosophical problem anymore but Kajin you you uh, were, you, were, were you a sporty young man um I mostly played badminton and swim, and then and did swimming so I guess those are pretty individual sports and I suppose like a lot of the justification for sports well when I was growing up and when my parents were kind of training me was you know you gotta create your CV to get into a good school right I think it's become a lot of it has become that, and that's why I think the individual sports have become very, very important rather than the team sports. Um, but you know, I, there's something that that you brought up, which I, I I thought was really interesting about like the kind of historical origins of Victorian team sports, right? But I also wanted to kind of like bring it back to a kind of more pre-colonial origin. You know, I'm like thinking about like the Mesoamerican ball game that was practiced by the Nahotos and the, the Mayan civilization where, you know, the ball game was a proxy for warfare. It's still a very, very male thing, but it was basically a proxy for warfare where you learn to coordinate in a team. You play a ball, but essentially you're testing like these values of coordination, athleticism, and it had a lot of ritual significance as well for the Mesoamericans. And there'll often be a human sacrifice at the end of a <laughs> losing ball game as well. <laughs> Yeah, just to make it fun. One of the things also that, that that I was taught about sport, team sport, was that there was no real room for flair. There was no room for any one person standing out. Um, like I say, we didn't mm. teach football because that was a working class sport. And in the in the working class sport of football, there would be an acceptance that one person might have flair. Mm. And that person usually played on the wing. And that was partly because the wing was the only dry spot on an otherwise incredibly muddy pitch. Um, but even then, it was frowned upon. If everybody was all kind of full of flair, that really wasn't a proper team because they, they wanted to replicate the shop floor, the, the factory floor. Right. So uh, sort of homogenizing, kind of 
no one stands out too much. Everyone learns their place in the uh, factory line. Yeah, yeah. And, and the original lineup in football, when it was first uh, created, when it was differentiated from rugby, is uh, now we think of like four four two. You know, and maybe you know, four defenders, four midfielders, and one two strikers. Then it was uh, nine people up front, nine strikers, as it were, one person wow. at the back, and and one person in goal. And um, <clears throat> flair was not an issue. It was just heads down, charge at the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but it changed. But Anne, I, I want to put you on the spot for one second. You did play hockey. Yeah, I played hockey. Um, badminton, badminton, so um, netball. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I was one of those sporty gals. You took it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, looking back, you would say you enjoyed it and it was a good thing. For sure. And like Kajin said, you know, the, 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 the idea of um, sports also was, you know, it's something which it's extracurricular, but also for those who are not necessarily showing their academic prowess at that age, uh, sports is somewhere where at least you can kind of uh, enjoy school or or you know have some kind of a social life so so yeah it helps to play sports and and be be good at something you know I mean be good at uh, um, you know I mean I love sports because because of the kind of shoot I mean it's it's something in the wiring I think um, you know things like hand-to-eye coordination and so on um, if you've got it You've got. I know. I don't know that it's something that is that easily learned, like like many other things. Um, and I think that people don't enjoy a particular sport because they're not good at it, or because people are telling them they're not good at it, and so they give it up. But actually, you know, you could pursue it uh, to to a point where I'm I'm part of something called the Rainbow Recreation Club, Cam, uh, and uh, the the motto is fun first. So it doesn't matter how you uh, play; it's the fact that you play. Okay, well, one day I will challenge you to, to play rugby and be as short-sighted as I am and, <laughs> and see yeah. what happens to you. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on to topic number two. And um, Anne, uh, something that doesn't really work on radio, silence, and something that we, we kind of are afraid of, I think. But, uh, yeah, the history of silence. Yeah, so basically because of the kind of impact of COVID and this last two years, I haven't actually written much in this period. I have written, you know, work that that pays, you know, so 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 I have, you know, uh, reports that have to be written, things like that in terms of earning. But for my own creative writing, I have not written very much. And I, I, I know partly part of that is because of dealing with various grief and and all kinds of you know, like, like many, uh, lots of things uh, experienced during this during this time that has felt very difficult to deal with. But it seemed to me that also part of, in a way, what's what's happening politically uh, in the country and, and socially and all kinds of things are, are making me almost kind of unable to speak. You know, if I want to, I mean, as a writer, of course, we, you know, we write, uh, uh, we use <laughs> words. Um, these are uh, very, very important to be uh, expressive and as, as and in relation to the freedom of expression, these are all critical. But in terms of a history of silence, it, it, I've tried to kind of find out a little more about how silence um, has been studied. And part of this is, uh, I mean, you know, anecdotally, I recall that people like Maya Angelou, when she was eight, right, she didn't speak for five years. Um, 
because she believed that she brought about the death of the man who had physically assaulted her. You know, she didn't speak for five years because of the incident. Um, and then he was killed. Uh, and she didn't speak because she thought that she brought his death. You know, she, she, her words had brought about his death. Um, and, and then slowly, slowly, uh, as she writes about, you know, she's coaxed to, to speaking. Um, an ex-partner of mine didn't speak as a child because she was surrounded by adults who spoke in many languages. Uh, Iban, Hokkien, you know, so, so the, actually her parents thought that she had some kind of learning or speech impediment. And I think we are familiar with the idea of, of silence, you know, in prison or silence in sort of monastic context. Um, but as a, as a mode of resistance, uh, as a mode of being able to, to use your silence in a way that might change or might affect things, I think um, I, I'm interested to see, to find out more about that. And, and one of the books that I, I, I've been reading is by Jane Brocks uh, and, and her book is called Silence, a social history of one of the least understood elements of our life. And she talks about how, of course, yes, there's been a lot of how, you know, silence is actually a shaper of the human mind, you know, that, that the impact of so many people that we know who have been imprisoned, uh, and use that time, you know, uh, uh, to come up with great works or great energy or whatever it is to then subsequently change the conditions in which they find themselves. Um, but, and, and also how, you know, but to talk about silence has that kind of paradox about mm. it, obviously. I mean, if you, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, um, there's a nice quote by Pax Picard, who, you know, in his book, The World of Silence, where he talks about silence is as much a part of history as noise the invisible as much a part of history as the invisible. Um, and I think of, you know, the queer punk band Diam, you know, which has a nice irony of silence uh, uh, in, their, in their title. And that's as far as I've, I've gotten in terms of kind of, you know, but a history of silence where there's, there's, a, there's a short film by a Canadian Chinese writer and filmmaker. It's called Model Minority. A History of Silence, which is about Canadian Chinese uh, uh, in, in Canada. And uh, he refers to a history of silence that speaks louder than the Hiroshima bomb. Um, and that's looking at how, you know, the image of, you know, Chinese as being, as he put it, you know, never allowed people, only hardworking. I mean, that's only particular, uh, you know, these kinds of stereotypes about what, you know, that community is within that, that country. Yeah. And it sounds like you're onto a bit of a winner there, actually. Uh, I mean, no one's ever done it. I mean, Kajin, it's like, there's very little silence in my life. I don't know if I, I mean, have you? Well, um, I was just about to bring up to Anne Lee, actually, um, which is that, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about, like, uh, when you were talking about silence and music, I was thinking about a few things. Um, first of which is John Cage's very controversial piece, 433, right? Oh, Where he yeah, just yeah. goes up on stage and he just sits at the piano and plays nothing. There's like a whole score, right? There are like notes and everything, but he plays literally nothing. And it's his most well-known, but also controversial piece where he contends that silence is his own music. And I think the other thing that I was thinking about is uh, in Bali, uh, the day of Nyepi, you know, that day of silence yeah. where everyone, you know, don't go to work, keep the lights low, don't run helter-skelter, just... Have a day of silence where you don't talk to people, where you just stay at home. And I've always thought that 
you know, I, I've been in Bali when it's Nepi, and it's so jarring to see some place that's always hustling and busting just become a ghost Very town. Quiet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I think especially in this day and age where, I mean, it's not just the, the sounds, but also even the lights. Like, you know, you don't realize that in the city, it's like, there's always lights and there's so much noise and suddenly, whoop, everything's gone. Yeah. When you do find yourself in silence, it it, it is frightening. Actually, I think I was in Bali once and and I think that one of the Balinese, I can't quite remember, was telling me it's really quite policed. It's not like a lot of, all. everybody just really wants to do it. You know, you, you really have to do it. <laughs> and uh, it reminds me also, though, of the um, punishment in uh, Victorian times, in prisons in, in England, where they, um, they had this pan- panopticon, you know, where that you could watch, the, the guards could watch everything. But also, all the prisoners had to be in silence all the time. They couldn't talk to each other, and they had to wear masks. They couldn't even see each other. And it absolutely broke people being unable to communicate with anybody, they would go mad. Um, I think Oscar Wilde talks about it in, you know, in, in, in his, um, the, his time in... Um, Reading Jail. Yeah, that, that there's only one season in, in the whole time, and it's the season of sorrow. You know, just everything is, is, is taken away from you. Yeah, and you can imagine how it hurt somebody like Oscar Wilde <laughs> to have to be in silence. I had a lot of silence when I was, when I was young, I mean, because there wasn't any phones or anything. And I would sit, I would have to, we would all have to sit there in silence on long car trips or in between. And and I, I got very used to that. I can still fall back on it. Although it's it's a challenge now. I feel I need to fill every second with something. Well, I think we typically think that nothing really happens in silence. You know, whereas silence is actually, is incredibly active. Um, I mean, something like that title of, you know, that book, uh, Breaking the Silence, Voices of Moderation, the, the, the G20, G21 group that, that Islam in a constitutional democracy, that book that they came out with. Um, I think the idea is that, you know, you, that silence is awkward or silence is, is you know, that nothing's happening in silence. Um, but I think the contrary is true. Obviously, I'm not talking about a sort of I mean, the brain has to focus on one thing in order to then have everything else kind of quietened down um, when you're doing meditation, you know, when you're when in, in that kind of situation. But otherwise, I think when people assume silence, say, on the part of people not responding to a question, that, that actually, no, it's just there is a lot happening. Um, but in that silence, uh, uh, it, it, it's just referring to no apparent response. Um, but. Yeah. but actually the brain can create silence, even in sound, because we can actually decide to listen to one small part of in the noise and, and our brain is able to filter out the rest. So a lot of people who have to use hearing aids hate using hearing aids because they have to hear everything. Um. They can't focus on that one person. They can also hear the clatter behind. So our brain actually can do this amazing thing of, sort of creating silence in sound in noise but we we must move on but uh and you do you have confidence that you can write a history of silence no i i i'm not saying that i want to, to write one but i i i'm intrigued by by ideas around what silence is and and mm. how silence can be used as a mode of um resistance or as a mode mm-hmm. of uh, yeah resilience um and this is coming out of you know this time where i feel personally so 
I mean, I'm on Twitter, which is probably my best example of kind of noise, uh, but it's still an ethnographic kind of <laughs> experiment. But the ability sometimes for me to say anything, to I just feel that being quiet is important. It's just at times, you know, and what happens in that silence is, is incredibly noisy. It's incredibly um, busy and active. Yeah, that's really the, the, yeah. the, the simple um, don't you know we assume that nothing's happening um but i like to think that no actually many things are happening and it is a way of 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 responding to something that that sometimes you know you want a response you don't get one it doesn't mean to say they are uh, not that person is not engaging or or even you know not 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 interested i think it's a mistaken assumption obviously it has its limits but silence at the moment is proving very helpful and productive for me <laughs> In a way that it never has. Yeah, well, we, we must move on. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of us in the present political climate in Malaysia have fallen into silence without knowing what else to, to do. So we're going to go to the opposite of silence, the, the musical album, and going to ask a question if it is a dead genre after this short break here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Dr. Anley, and on Karjin. And now, Karjin, uh, this um, topic of yours is music to my ears. I've been wanting to do this for years. I dedicate the entire show to this. Um, <laughs> it's something I think about a lot. And uh, that is, is the album dead? Yeah, I mean, so the other day, a friend of mine sent me a song by Billy Joel, Vienna, right? Great song. The thing is, I had not heard it. I've heard a lot of Billy Joel songs but I had not heard Vienna in particular because by the time I started listening to Billy Joel, the, my main medium of listening to it was Spotify, you know, some streaming thing, right? And I just take like the biggest Billy Joel hits, what's on the billboards, right? Instead of listening to the album itself. And that got me thinking, right? You know, what are we missing today when our choices when the single is, you know, the most profitable, the most pushed way of listening and experiencing music, when there are very, very few artists that, um, you know, release albums as a kind of concerted narrative, it's really more of a collection of hit singles now nowadays, right? And, you know, how much are we missing out in terms of the craft of music when we do that? Oh, oh, good. I might chance to speak. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you can download the album one. You, you can. I, I mean, I have no idea what album uh, Vienna was on. Was it on one of the his Stranger. early? The Stranger. It was The Stranger. So that's one of his earlier. That's one of his that's, earlier. That's like his fourth and biggest hit. That You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the big one. Right. I think that the, the, um, in preparation for this today, I listened to two albums. Um, Fleetwood Mac's Rumours and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, you know, two of the biggest in, uh, in history. And I, I had a quick look at recent. I, I thought, what does K-pop do? Do K-pop care about albums? Because they're new to the, the scene, the commercial thing. So Blackpink, for instance, um, they had their second album came out and it was a big seller. It was, uh, it was over, over 1 million. And that is quantified in different ways. You have an album, album equivalent sale. So if 10 people download one song, that's considered the equivalent of one album. <clears throat> so you add all those up, plus the physical, all the downloads and everything, you get one million. Uh, one person who I think does kick the trend of the death of the album is Adele. She kind of 
appeals to an older demographic. So she sold something like two million in physical form of, of her last album, which is good. That's really great. But when you think Fleetwood Mac Rumors sold 10 million in its first month, but then in those days, that was a way to make money. You sold, you sold albums, you made money. But you don't make money on albums anymore. It's a loss leader for your, your, the other things you do. Mm-hmm. I think um, arguably, you know, it's, a, it's now like a big name artist thing to do, to still have, be able to sell an album, right? Because um, I think in recent years, probably the only big artists who have really had, you know, they drop an album and people are like, oh my God, a new album came out. Instead of, oh, there's a new hit single. Are like people like Beyonce, people like Kanye, people like uh, Taylor Swift. So Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift is, yeah. you know, is particularly famous because, and, and Kanye, because they are the kind of people who just say, oh, my album is out right now. And there's like no buzz at all. It's like the opposite of a whole hype campaign. The people go crazy precisely because an album is just dropped at the very last minute with no fanfare at all. And they still manage to push album sales. But I think outside of the realm of these mega stars, I think there are very few outside of more independent labels that still do albums as a kind of craft of narrative. Yeah, because like the Blackpink one was um, 10 songs with three different producers. Yep. And it's uh, it's not built as something you had that the artist had to record in a couple of months, and it it just sort of signposted where they were at that moment in a couple of months. And uh, you're a are you a were you are you a album kind of girl? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I I I <laughs> I think people will recommend albums is, is typically how I think or I hear a song and then I want to see what else is on that album because I mean Kajin you mentioned that that like there's a kind of narrative mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean like I I take it that doesn't mean kind of like it, it's necessarily uh, you know thematic right I mean it, it these, you put songs there that kind of didn't fit anywhere else necessarily or you you know it's uh there's no main theme that runs through them I think yeah, I mean, you know, I create my own albums, right? You, now you just you put whatever whatever songs you want on on your own. Yeah, I I do that too. Kajin, do you recognize that as being a legitimate uh, form? I I have no problem with it, right? I mean, you know, I do. <laughs> I you know play playlists playlists things and all that, but I do think there is something that's missed out on, right? So like I I think back to you know one of the first albums that I really experienced as a quote-unquote album, right? Um, well, I mean, think about it, right? So, you know, in the era of classical music, one piece used to be like 20 minutes, half an hour. That's the length of an entire album, right? So you had no choice but to kind of feel the entire kind of climax, the build-up and all those parts. And then we went to the era of singles where, you know, you know, songs are getting shorter nowadays. There's data that shows singles are getting shorter and shorter because they know the way people find music nowadays is they listen to a new song on Spotify or whatever. They listen to the first 10 or 20 seconds. And if they don't like the first 10 or 20 seconds, they skip over it. Right. Mm. So I think that 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 trend is very real. But on the other hand, I think we're really missing out something by not listening to the album. I think about like my one of my favorite albums is Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid Mad City, right? And you can listen to individual songs like Swimming Pool, which are great. But if you listen and you're like, okay, this guy is very talented. He's got a way of words or 
it's about kind of you know life in in the west coast and this kind of struggle but when if you you um listen to the entire album in one sitting then it's really an elegy about life on the west coast and and the kind of almost autobiographical kind of treaties out there and it, you you see start seeing every piece differently and you can see the rhythm and flows between songs and i think that's that's something really valuable that's lost when we don't listen to albums mm. west coast you mean butterworth um <laughs> <laughs> I I would say though that uh, I grew up in the age of albums and 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 I love them. I I thought that the world would always have albums, but it was actually it was actually an aberration. It was a moment when the the long player vinyl was invented in the early sixties. You could fit about forty minutes worth of music on it, and just by sheer coincidence, that was about the length of a classical symphony. Mm. So. Actually, suddenly the classical symphony became a big thing when the symphony had actually become kind of a bit forgotten. Um, and I think in a way that the, the people, when they created their albums, couldn't help but think of them as being little symphonies. And But one thing about the album, what was also an aberration, it was an almost entirely non-visual experience. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon had just that one picture of a, a prism with a sort of rainbow light going through it and nothing else. <laughs> No, but but that's the art. I mean, I love yeah. album art. I love album art. No, me too. But now you don't need to do that. Now you can have every song can be visualized. Right. The music video. And all the information you want to know about the people in that group, you can get. Whereas the band Pink Floyd were an absolute mystery. There were no pictures of them. Although I do think the great the great albums, the lyrics, they made a point to be visual in their lyrics. So like at the, at the very end of Dark Side of the Moon, see you on the dark side of the moon. Anne? No, I was just thinking, trying to think of, of, of an album that I really sort of looked for and, and, and saw in a way and, and kind of, you know, like eight songs for the price of one or, you know, and, and that would be, yeah, I mean, you know, Beyonce's uh, uh, Lemonade, I oh, mean, which brilliant. is you know, still some time ago now. But that to me is is an example of of where... Yeah, there's a clear narrative there, or, or we think, right, the way in which, you know, it has all been written up, um, and which, to a great extent, you know, she didn't deny a lot of it, but she was silent uh, around it, so who knows, actually, uh, but but um, that's the last kind of great album in my mind that I can think of where really and truly, like, listening to every single song, uh, uh, there's something completely different, and there's something, you know, I mean, I think if lyrics are good enough, you know, the visual, the visual is there mm, yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. You know, we're not fed on the, the kind of videos of them or whatever. Um, but yes, I can see that that is something where, where, but, you know, wow, how much experience has to go and time into creating that, especially as, you know, as a solo where you yourself have, have written um, the songs. I, that, that I can, when I think of an album, that's what I think of as an album. So, Kajin, answer your own question. Is the album dead? Um, I don't think so. I think it it's it's evolving. I think um, you know, and you you brought up Beyonce's Lemonade. I think that's where you know they realized that you, you can't if you're gonna sell an album, it can't just be like oh, here's a collection of songs, right? 
it has to be an event. There has, there has to be a whole marketing campaign behind it. That you have to brand it like this is a visual masterpiece, right? And I think for for that kind of artist, the album is going to still be very important. And I think particularly, even though we might we might not as consumers might not experience the album as a complete entity, I think that's still very very much how a lot of artists conceptualize and, and come up with their work, right? And I think there'll always be a segment of us that, you know, we are interested not just in the particular song that we like, but we also want to see what the evolution and the growth of this artist is or how they were feeling and at different points of their journey in making the album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, best album ever? Quick. <laughs> top of your head. Um, top of my head, I love... Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's the best album ever, but for me, this was formative. Nirvana's Nevermind. Oh, okay. Anne Lee, quick. Best album ever. I already said. Oh, Beyonce. Yeah. Wow, you're young and cool and hip. Yeah, no, on no. the other hand, I'm the one <laughs> the, going the, the, You know, the sentiment of the whole thing. Oh, no, come on. She's, she's... Oh, she's great. No, she's great. She's, she's great. fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, well, then I'll go back in time and I'll say... Um, uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, Ben. The Beatles. Solid. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, well, we move on, and we move to the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. I'm going to go first, and I'm not going to spend the next one hour going through the best 100 albums of all time. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, I'm going to say um, I want to recommend a, a book by a sports journalist by the name of Jonathan Wilson, and it's called uh, Inverting the Pyramid. It's a, it's a history of football, uh, football tactics. And also it's a social history of football. It's really fascinating to discover that the football that we watch now is so very different from what it was imagined at the beginning and the steps along the way that brought it to this point and the resistance uh, against that. So the idea of flair in football actually came from Scotland, of all places. So it's a really interesting book. I can't say I understood every word of it. I can't say I understood more than maybe 10% of it because it becomes very mathematical, the 442, and then you invert the pyramid. And it's all bizarre. But if you are interested in football, it's, uh, it's one of those books that you, it's, it's kind of there and it has to be read. So that's uh, Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson. Anne, what's your recommendation? Okay, my recommendation is something that um, I, I've sort of written a little bit about, but it's, it's, it's by Wani Ardi. Uh, and to my shame, I had not heard about her until this was recommended to me by uh, Sue Ahmad of Tokosu, which is a, um, a woman-owned, um, writer-owned indie book shop. Uh, it's, it's also on shop, shop, is it Shopee or shop? I never Shopee. know. Shopee, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's on, uh, but the book uh, is called The Art of Letting Go, uh, brackets D. So it's Art of Letting Go, Art of Letting God, um, but the mm. D is in brackets. And she calls it a, a collection of memoirs. Um, but it's, it's really sort of that, that, that kind of fragmentary collection of poetic prose and, and also images. Uh, and it's sort of dealing with, it, it took her, she said about four, four years to write, but it's really about her, the experiences that she had facing a lot of difficulty. Um, I think she's better known for a collection called Langit Vanilla, which is a short story, which is now going through a 10th anniversary. But, you know, so if I pick kind of the sort of chapter headings or the, the, the headings of the, the pieces, 
there's I just random there's something weight white checklist inheritance um perspective Rokitansky um dissimilar anyway there there it's a lot of uh, collections of these fragments and it, they're poignant um they are moving without being kind of maudlin and um yeah pithy you know succinct truths that, uh, um you know you can relate to uh, essays not not essays uh, they're, they're more like fragmentary sort of it's like poetry or, or or prose short you know so so one is 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 kind of maybe one page worth you know it's 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 like that and there's and and another is sort of written on a piece of it's it's a photograph or something that's been written on so the whole thing is 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 quite um okay. uh, artistically what's it called again? In a way. so it's called the art of letting go brackets d close brackets so art of letting go the art of letting god um and it's by wani ardi um what press published uh published by uh also also very well known uh, laras 99 okay uh and yeah and if, if you look for tokosu uh t o k o s u e um she's also got a store in 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 Wisma Central on the first floor but it's on Shopee you can just get it and it's, it's yeah it's um I, one day we should recommend Wisma Central as well. Actually, that's an interesting place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, Onkar Jin, what's your recommendation? Um, I am going to recommend this book by uh, music critic Alex Ross called "The Rest Is Noise: Listening oh. to the Twentieth Century." Um, and like your book uh, on football, uh, Cam, it's uh, it's basically a kind of history of the twentieth century, but through music. So, you know, I think we know so much about 20th century artists like Picasso and Dali and all that, and 20th century writers like T.S. Eliot. But, and, you know, these are kind of considered like, you know, the canon. You got to know them in school. But there's actually very little scholarship and what we know of um, 20th century composers, you know, people like Philip Glass, uh, Shostakovich, uh, Stravinsky, uh, Gershwin, right? We don't really study them. Um, so this book is kind of trying to understand um, their kind of historical context, how they evolved, their influence in the kind of uh, avant-garde, in the kind of cultural moments of the 20th century. And I would say it's not so much a history of music per se, but it's more of a history of the 20th century true music. So I think it's 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 great and it's really a different way of looking at the social movements of the 20th century. I've I've definitely heard of this book. And uh, yes. I should, I when does it cover pop pop music, Kristen? popular music? Uh, it mostly is quite preoccupied with 20th century composers, really. Right. Uh, but it's it's uh but it does look at say you know what's the effect of like minimalism, like Eric Satie stuff on like people like the Velvet Underground on rock and pop. So it weaves these narratives in like larger cultural moments where previously, you know, people thought, okay, people like John Cage, you know, those are like apathy people and they don't really have much effect on the larger pop scene. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. So that's uh, The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century by Alex Ross. Cool. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And only remains me now to thank Dr. Ann Lee, Thank you. Thank you. I want you to do that book on the, the history of silence. I mean, it'd be, it'd be fun. I don't know how you'd do it. It'd be so hard, but it's... It, it would be it, many blank pages, 
<laughs> no, but silence is not silent. Um, oh, hey, I've given you the title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Onkar Jin, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, next time we will dedicate an entire show to the, the history of the album. And, I would love that. Christmas <laughs> Central. Yeah. And, uh, and myself, Cam Rasland. So please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping. Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.